0: If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash Dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. I
1: think it's really just being conscious and as aware as possible of, of what our options are and then trying to take these little steps on you know on a daily basis or in the context of a vehicle uh, whenever the choices are presented just to try to do the right thing and try to you know make a positive contribution
0: what exactly is hydrogen fuel and what is its potential in helping to green our transportation sector what are the environmental impacts of electric vehicles compared to hydrogen fuel cell cars That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons and our sponsor, Arbor Teas. Arbor Teas is a small family-owned organic tea company driven by sustainability in everything they do, from the sourcing, backyard compostable packaging, use of solar energy, and more. I'm excited to share more about them with you later. But for now, to our conversation with Brian Goldstein, the executive director of Energy Independence Now, which is the only nonprofit on a mission to support the transition to a cleaner transportation system through hydrogen fuel. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in.
1: Well, I'd have to say it was really my parents early on that that got me started. I mean, we are an animal family. When I was born, we had five dogs and I learned, you know, just to love animals right off the bat. There were still pictures of me out, I guess, with my folks looking through the old timey albums of me rolling around the floor as an mm-hmm. infant with, you know, five dogs that are chewing on my pacifier while I'm playing with their dog toys. <laughs> you know, it's more than just having pets, it was this sense of responsibility that my parents really instilled in me and that, you know, we have to take better care of the things that are reliant upon us, that that don't have the ability to necessarily take care of themselves and that we have this greater responsibility to to look after them first and to make sure that they're well cared for. And so it was really this uh, compassion for animals very early on, And then I spent a lot of time in the outdoors with my folks. You know, a lifetime ago, I I actually grew up in a relatively small town in Alabama. We spent a lot of time out in nature. My folks quickly got me involved in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts. And uh, I'd say that, you know, Boy Scouts really picked it up from there. My experience, you know, I was camping or hiking or backpacking or doing conservation projects weekly for, you know, several years that were really impactful for me. So, you know, it was kind of this combined concept from, you know, between my folks where they taught me, you know, essentially to be a good house guest, right? That when you are a, a guest, you leave the place uh, better than it, it was when you arrived and that you, you know, take care of other people's things and you show respect for for your environment in general. And that carried over into Boy Scouts where we literally, you know, every time we, when camping or backpacking, not only did we, did we focus on leaving the place you know, as it was when we came, but we took it one step further and tried to do one small thing to improve uh, every area that, that we were exposed to in the outdoors, whether it was uh, picking up garbage or trying to do you know, erosion mitigation or whatever it might have been. That we just had this kind of uh, rule that we should do one small thing at least before we leave that leaves the place better than where we were
0: before. And I know it's been quite a journey for you since then. But what's your personal path look like that led you to becoming executive director at nonprofit Energy Independence Now?
1: Well, I've always had a, uh, this environmental passion. I've, I've been an avid outdoorsman, you know, my entire life. I moved to California from Colorado, where I spent eight years. Uh, very active in, in the outdoors and uh, ended up moving here for, for grad school. So my first job out of grad school was with a startup company that was looking to help build out the California Hydrogen Highway. So that was shortly after our founder, uh, Terry and who's a Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation CEO, and then Governor Schwarzenegger uh, announced the California Hydrogen Highway Initiative my employer at the time picked up on the initiative, had similar outlook and, and ideals for cleaning up transportation, and ended up starting a, a new company to help build a hydrogen fueling stations. So I met the owner of this company through my mentor in grad school, and what I really liked about it was that it had this kind of intersect of environment and sustainability with the automotive industry, which is a lot of fun. And at the time, you know, there were the auto companies were really active in this kind of new environment of hybrid vehicles and this new concept of cleaning up transportation, which was in a way kind of backlash to the, you know, the Hummer movement. So that just those very conspicuous, massive trucks, the auto industry was kind of coming around with the the Prius and uh, with other hybrids to really kind of create this, this side movement. And so this, this first job out of grad school really offered me this opportunity to participate in both worlds in the sustainability world. And with some of the the fun and and sex appeal, so to speak of, of like the automotive industry.
0: Mm. And for our listener hearing about EIN for the first time, can you share briefly what the organization does and how you go about doing this?
1: So EIN is the only environmental nonprofit that just focuses on hydrogen. We have our roots in um, drafting the California Hydrogen Highway Initiative for then Governor Schwarzenegger. We, early on in the the movement, drafted or co-drafted legislation with Union of Concerned Scientists requiring that 33.3% of hydrogen sold for transportation use in California is renewable. And the interesting thing about that, that was 2006, it was nine years later that you could finally actually walk into a, a dealership as a consumer and drive one of these cars off the lot. So we knew, you know, very on that it wasn't, you know, just enough to uh, be driving zero emission vehicles, but we needed to make sure that the entire value chain, so to speak, behind the vehicles uh, was renewable, and that we were setting a path to achieving, you know, 100% renewable fuel and vehicles with zero emissions.
0: Mm. And I'd love for us to start with the basics. So can you walk us through an introduction to hydrogen fuel? Like you mentioned, this was already a thing back in 2009, but it's the infrastructure is more so available today to support this actually being realized for, for consumers. How new is this innovation in general beyond that? And how exactly does it work?
1: Well, it's actually... Very old technology. I mean, this is the same technology that we used to send humans to the moon in, in the 50s. Hydrogen production technology is well over 100 years old and has been used extensively for massive industrial purposes, from fertilizer production. So, um, fertilizer ammonia is NH3, so it's, it's primarily hydrogen. To refining oil into gasoline, hydrogen is used to you know clean up the impurities in, in oil. It's used for um, all, all sorts of, of massive industry, right? So the technology is old, the fuel cell technology is old, and the uh, technology behind electrolyzers which separate water into hydrogen and oxygen is, is actually very mature as well. So we've used that in spacecraft, as I mentioned before, and in submarines as well, where they would rather than capturing the hydrogen, they would capture the oxygen so that the folks in the submarines could could actually breathe so the technology has been there for a long time it's finally becoming cheap enough or it actually became cheap enough for individuals to own fuel cell vehicles you know over the last 10 to 15 years and the primary constraint to widespread adoption of the vehicles is is really the fueling network so it's it's not a technological hurdle at all it's really just an economic hurdle so Without enough vehicles on the road to guarantee demand at the stations, developers didn't really have the financial incentives to just go out and build these stations and hope that drivers would come and help them pay back the the loans that they had to take out for for the equipment. So EIN worked with the state of California to commit to building the the first 100 stations. So California committed $200 million uh, to build the first 100 stations. About 40 of them are open right now, another 25 are under construction, and the California Energy Commission is right now issuing a a grant for the next round of stations. So we'll probably see anywhere from 10 to 20 in the next round, and then we'll likely have one more round after that.
0: So we have this kind of like the chicken and the egg issue, where in order for people to want to buy hydrogen fuel cars, they want to know that there are convenient charging or fueling stations already available. But for cities and developers to invest in this infrastructure, they also want to know that there's already demand for it.
1: Absolutely. And so, you know, California, thankfully, is very forward looking in that context and realize that, you know, the role of the the policy community is to help Push movements that are good for the people that don't necessarily have the economics behind them to to drive themselves. Mm. So they had the foresight to say, okay, if we build these stations, use the automotive community, will you commit to bringing the cars out? And several companies uh, did make that commitment. So we we started to see this ebb and flow of ten stations would open up, and car companies release would release uh, you know a thousand cars here, and then more stations, and then more cars. So. You know we're finally getting to this critical point or tipping point, so to speak, where we're getting enough cars on the road and we have enough incentives at the state level to start driving developers to, to go in and build these stations without state grants. And so uh, California now has about six thousand fuel cell electric vehicles on the road, and like I said, we're on our, our way to one hundred stations. So EIN is now doing the work to try to figure out what it's going to take to build the second hundred stations and then the economic and financial analysis to figure out how the free market can pick up investment to get us to that critical mass of, you know, a thousand plus stations that we need to really open up the industry for all consumers.
0: Mm. So when I talked about hydrogen fuel on my Instagram account and asked if my audience had any questions about it or any comments, uh, someone said that it's not very efficient to create hydrogen fuel because it takes energy to create hydrogen energy. So is this true? Has this changed? And what do we need to know about the process of making hydrogen fuel.
1: Well, I guess I should have addressed this a little bit in the uh, in the intro to hydrogen fuel. So, you know, backing up at a broad level, hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. It's literally the, you know, the connective molecule that that really connects most of what we see and do around us, right? So, the issue with hydrogen is that it doesn't exist by itself in nature, right? You can't just pull it out of the air and and store it without some type of of energy input, because it it wants to attach to another molecule and typically that other molecule is oxygen. So if you burn hydrogen or utilize hydrogen in a fuel cell, which um, is an electrochemical uh, reaction on a combustion, it will seek out oxygen and this is what creates the energy. It will seek out oxygen and then uh, essentially create water as the only byproduct. So. There is an energy input requirement into isolating hydrogen so that we can then store it in whatever form we want to, whether it's gaseous or or liquid. And the real trick, as with any other energy component, is just making sure that the inputs are sustainable, right? So, you know, the hydrogen fuel that I fuel up with, you know, once a week with my car at the station is, is only as renewable as either the electricity that's gone into electrolyzing water or as the renewable gas that goes into you know extracting uh, hydrogen from methane so that renewable gas can come from anywhere from dairies to wastewater treatment plants or landfills and i'd say it's it's really the same concept or hurdle with battery electric vehicles right the the vehicles are only as clean as the electricity behind the the plug so we really don't often put a lot of consideration into you know what's going Into, you know, the entire value chain behind the actual plug where we're plugging in our cars. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, the state of California is somewhere around 33% renewable right now, 34%. And so, you know, our battery electric vehicles are are running on about 33% renewable fuel. So we have, as a state, have a goal of, you know, at a grid level, reaching 100% renewable. And uh, EIN is working very hard to make sure that we have the same standard for hydrogen fuel as well.
0: Mm. So definitely the same thing with electric cars is if someone were to charge their electric cars in a state or in a community that's powered by coal plants, that's not really supporting green energy because the source of that electricity isn't renewable.
1: That's exactly the concept. And when we look beyond transportation, which is really kind of this amazing story of of hydrogen, is that, you know, I mentioned earlier that we use hydrogen in massive levels for industrial purposes. But The real area where I think we will all see and and hear more about hydrogen, especially renewable and and decarbonized hydrogen, is as an energy storage medium. So ultimately, we all know and it's it's law now in California that we're moving towards 100 percent renewable energy and we have high hopes for other states and other countries to follow California's lead. But what we don't often consider when we think about, you know, the massive uh, solar farms and wind farms that will make this possible is that, you know, how will we store enough energy during the eight or 10 hours the sun is shining to then power cities the size of L.A. and San Francisco overnight? And the, the fact of the matter is that we are going to have to be able to store massive amounts of renewable energy. So we'll have to produce during, you know, an eight or 10 hour period three times the amount of energy that we're using during that period so that we can store that electricity and, and then return it back to the grid to power these very large cities overnight. And there are a few ways of storing that energy. You know, There's, there's pumped hydro, which is actually uh, very efficient, but it doesn't really scale up to the level that we need in California. And we have water restrictions uh, or water constraints already in California. So pumped hydro isn't really a great option for us, and the fact of the matter is that there are really just not enough battery materials, you know, on the planet to be able to store enough electricity at a utility scale to be able to, you know, move the entire planet to renewable, 100% renewable energy. So, you know, I've seen stats of that coming from UC Irvine saying that it would take 70 times the known amount of lithium reserves on the planet and a thousand times the known amount of cobalt on the planet in order to create enough energy storage for the entire planet to go 100% renewable so that really leaves hydrogen as this energy storage medium that will allow us to to store renewable energy so to take excess wind and solar and use that to you know split water into hydrogen and oxygen and then save the hydrogen for whenever we need it and either return it to the grid with a fuel cell or distribute it to uh, fueling stations, so that people can drive fuel cell vehicles.
0: Are there any toxic chemicals or emissions involved in the process of creating and storing hydrogen fuel?
1: Well, our focus is to make sure that that's not the case. In reality, a lot of hydrogen these days is produced from natural gas, right? It's the methane component in there that really is, is hydrogen dense, right? So if we're pulling this out of the ground, if we're pulling fossil fuels out of the ground, to create hydrogen for fuel cell electric vehicles. It's still much, much cleaner than gasoline. It's much cleaner than using a natural gas vehicle even, but it doesn't hit that you know, 100% renewable standpoint. You know, We measure the environmental impact of, of fuels in terms of carbon intensity. So the carbon intensity of gasoline is somewhere around like 100 grams per mile, right? It's, it's measured on a per mile basis. and hydrogen that is generated from solar power or other renewable electricity, along with battery electric vehicles that would be using uh, renewable electricity, we can reach zero carbon intensity. But if you take methane emissions from a dairy farm and capture them instead of letting them be released into the atmosphere and then use that For renewable hydrogen, we can get those carbon intensities down to negative 280. So at that point, you're literally cleaning up the atmosphere while you're driving these vehicles. You're you're not just having like a a zero impact, you're you're actually having a positive impact uh, on the planet by using fuel that's derived from renewable gas. So the methane component isn't always a, a bad thing, but it's not as clean as we would like it to be if you're pulling it out of the ground. That's certainly not the direction that we want to take this.
0: Mm. And when it comes to electric cars compared to hydrogen fuel cars, let's say that both of the sources come from renewable energy. What, What are the other environmental impact differences between the two?
1: So at that point, we're really looking at, you know, what are the components going into the cars? If the cars themselves and the fuel has... You know zero impact or zero emission. Uh, You know what's the impact and the life cycle of the materials that are going into the cars. So look, I'm a big battery electric vehicle proponent as well. I think this is great technology. And my personal beliefs and and the views of EIN is that this is going to take a portfolio approach. We need both technologies in order to achieve our our goals of 100% sustainable transportation. Right, and we can get into that in a few minutes, but you know, we don't know yet the implications of of recycling or reusing or disposing of massive amounts of of batteries, right? So we, we do know that they are recyclable. We know that there are other uses for batteries that are no longer efficient for cars, but, you know, they still may be usable for, you know, other applications. What we don't know is whether there is enough Lithium or cobalt or whatever the other materials are that we're using in our batteries in the world. What is the impact of extracting them from wherever they're coming from on the planet and then moving them to a processing facility where they can be, you know, processed to the point where they're, they can be put into batteries and then manufacturing the batteries and shipping the batteries to car manufacturing facilities. So there is really a impact from producing uh, batteries at that scale and certainly there will be an impact from disposing of batteries at that scale. Now is that something we can overcome? I, I certainly hope so. I, I'm certain that we have the ability to overcome issues like that, but there's still you know outstanding questions and, and still you know obstacles in our path to really achieving a true sustainable transportation system.
0: So it sounds like with hydrogen fuel, it does take energy to create that hydrogen fuel. Ideally, that can come from a renewable source. And with battery electric vehicles, we need material to create the batteries. The battery packs are also heavy and add weight to the vehicles that need to be transported around with that energy. And also, there's a question of what's going to happen to that material and the recyclability of that material. So it sounds like both of these alternative fuels, you mentioned earlier that you think that we should take a portfolio approach. So do you think it's just about capitalizing on these different types of energy in different situations? And what would that look like? Like, where would it make more sense to apply one versus the other?
1: So there are certainly limitations on the vehicle side from, you know, adding enough batteries to be able to move a fully loaded pickup truck or consider a a bus or a class 8 heavy-duty 18-wheeler as we call them in the U.S., right? So, you know, is it possible to electrify those and use batteries to propel those vehicles? Absolutely. But the fact of the matter is that in order to provide the range that uh, we've come to expect in that we need certainly for long term trucking, you have to put so many batteries on, on those vehicles that they're weighing them down to the point where there is this you know, point of diminishing return. So we may be able to get them up to, you know, one hundred and seventy five or two hundred miles range. But, you know, after that, every additional battery pack that we're adding to these vehicles is kind of, you know, canceling out the range because you're you're adding so much weight on. So, that's a really good application for fuel cells, especially when you consider either refueling or or recharging, right? So, you know, when we think about one bus or one 18 wheeler, it seems like, okay, this, you know, this is achievable. Maybe we can be patient and charge the thing overnight. Maybe we don't have to drive it, you know, from coast to coast. Maybe these things are just going from the port to downtown Los Angeles or to the Inland Empire. But when you consider that, there are almost 17,000 heavy duty trucks at the at the twin ports of uh, Long Beach and San Pedro. You know, what are the implications of plugging in even 5000 of those at the same time? You know, how long will it take? What needs to be done on the utility side in order to be able to, you know, recharge thousands of 18 wheelers at the same time? And then, you know, even if you can drive those 2 to 300 miles, you know, are there going to be places where hundreds or thousands of these trucks can stop and, you know, sit there for long enough to to recharge the batteries? So that's where hydrogen really provides some, some nice benefits, right? So the benefits are you can have heavier vehicles, obviously. The refueling time for, for hydrogen, so in, in light-duty vehicles, the refueling time is about five minutes, and the refueling experience is relatively similar to what we've become accustomed to with, with gasoline vehicles. So you're not really in a position uh, at that point where you have to you know, line up – Dozens or hundreds or or thousands of vehicles all at once for, you know, four to twelve hours, depending on, on the size of the batteries, to to fuel them up. You can just simply go about refueling them in a model that we're all used to at this point.
0: So it sounds like especially for larger vehicles like trucks and potentially even airplanes, to offset the weight of the battery packs, hydrogen fuel or fuel cells can have a lot of potential in helping to green these modes of transportation.
1: They absolutely can. And, you know, I've, I've got to say, I'm really not an expert on what it's going to take to clean up the aviation space. And mm-hmm. I think that. In general, that's going to be a huge challenge, whether we're talking about battery electric, fuel cell electric, or even, you know, renewable biofuels or, or liquid fuels. Aviation has just some some really tough limitations, weight being a primary limitation there. And we're seeing some really interesting advances in that area and some small aircraft, but you know, I'm I'm not sure what to expect out of like commercial aviation and and how to clean that up besides, you know, the renewable components and and traditional liquid fuels. So I think that's kind of the, you know, the new, new frontier and a place that will have obviously a huge impact. And uh, I think that provides a a great challenge for the, you know, for the great innovators and, and entrepreneurs of the world to really take on something that isn't necessarily proven and do some You know, experimenting in R and D in a safe manner to try to come up with these breakthroughs that will that will clean up aviation. Mm -hmm. With you know, with with ground transportation, as I mentioned before, none of this technology is really new. Whether it's battery electric vehicles or fuel cell electric vehicles, it's really been a case of you know the economics of of implementing those and and consumer will. But for aviation, I I think there are some more challenges there.
0: Yeah. So we'll start from the ground, and given that fuel cell is still Relatively new, at least in the minds of consumers, what's been your greatest challenge in getting the word out there about this option and encouraging people to make this shift?
1: You know, Americans really just want to pick a winner. And it seems that they're treating this battery electric vehicle versus fuel cell electric vehicle topic as as a race. And a lot of people have made up their minds, you know, in a similar fashion to you know, those old guys like me that remember the VHS versus Betamax competition, right? That's just simply not the case it's vehicles. We will absolutely need both types of vehicles to achieve our sustainability goals, whether we're talking about California, personal sustainability goals, or, or worldwide goals, right? For example, if you only need a small vehicle, you're not carrying a lot of cargo or a ton of people, you don't have a long commute, and you don't need, you know, a lot of range, which would be Expensive to put a lot of batteries into a vehicle and it would make the vehicle heavy. You know, battery electric vehicles have a a huge role to play in transportation and probably admittedly a a bigger role than fuel cell electric vehicles in uh, light duty urban transportation. But for those of us that want to be able to, you know, travel, say, back and forth between LA and San Francisco. Uh, freely without changing our habits, or to be able to, you know, fill the car up with a couple of friends and our dog and a few snowboards or sets of skis and go up to Mammoth and back. Fuel cell vehicles are really going to open up those possibilities because they have the options of, you know, much longer range. The cars I drive. On a daily basis, have a range of you know, 312 miles, and I think around 350 miles, respectively. And those are, you know, relatively early versions of these vehicles. I read a release this week about a um, Chinese manufacturer that's putting out fuel cell electric vehicles that'll have up to a 600-mile range. Wow. So, you know, for example, I, I, I drive back and forth to San Francisco and Sacramento all the time, and I have to stop one time, you know, in the middle for five minutes to refuel the vehicle. And while I'm refueling, you can see 18 Tesla fast chargers lined up with you know all kinds of folks sitting there reading or taking <laughs> a nap in their car while these things are are charging up. And in the 30 minutes to an hour that it takes them to top off, you know, there may be other people lining up. So if you consider the fact that we have 29 million cars in, in California, roughly, 18 fast chargers at the halfway point between San Francisco and LA won't do it. So we're going to run into a point where there well, we're already running into a point where there are constraints on chargers. Uh, There was a really interesting report that the ICCT released a couple of weeks ago, projecting a shortfall of chargers in California. Somewhere in the range of a 66% shortfall. So, in other words, by 2025, over the next six years, we'll only have one out of three chargers that we'll need in order to meet consumer demand for battery electric vehicles. Mm. So, you know, there there is a role to play for hydrogen in there. I think that we will see hydrogen vehicles really start to pick up speed as the network develops and as companies just frankly put out cool cars, right? And I think consumers don't want to just make the right decision the right you know decision in regards to sustainability but they also want to have some kind of you know cool technology a good looking car and they they really want to be able to kind of enjoy the best of both worlds so i think there's part of the burden is on the automotive OEMs to to put out the you know sexy vehicles so to speak
0: definitely Well, I had the opportunity to test drive the Toyota Mirai through EIN, and that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that experience, so I'm excited to see where this goes. And I'm sure there is a lot of new ones, but do you think it's safe to say that if people were to make more longer trips and if people go on a lot of road trips, it makes more sense for people to invest in hydrogen fuel cars and for people that take shorter trips just within the city, maybe electric is the better option.
1: That's probably a fair way to sum it up. You know, if you just have to drive 10 or 20 miles a day, if you have uh, workplace charging or a garage at home where you can charge, you know, the battery electric vehicle is probably going to be the best choice for you. But um, if you do want the options to drive to Mammoth or Vegas or Tahoe or San Francisco or Sacramento, you don't want to have to stop and wait for a a charger on the way. You know, a fuel cell electric vehicle is going to be a good option. We also have to look at the fact that, in California, about fifty percent of people live in multifamily housing. So access to chargers isn't quite as you know abundant as, as we really want to think, right? So a lot of people don't have garages, a lot of people you know have street parking or don't have the ability to charge their cars at home overnight, and they certainly don't all have employers that are providing free charging at work. So we have constraints within California. That are going to dictate people's access to to electric charging, and I think that's a, a great place for uh, fuel cell electric vehicles. And I think that it creates sort of um, you know equal footing for folks in you know all of the communities around California that don't necessarily, like I said, have their own garage or don't work at a company that provides recharging for them. It, it provides everyone uh, equal access to zero emission vehicles.
0: Mm. And the last thing I want to touch on is that I think transportation is an area that is more difficult for the individual to influence on a daily basis with our other choices like food, the amount of waste we create, or just other smaller consumer products that we purchase, because we we have more limitations with transportation. Some people don't have access to these alternative fuel charging stations just yet. Most people can't afford upgrading to the greenest new car right away, and some people still need to drive to work every day or need to fly more or less frequently for work or family reunions. So we really want to help green our transportation sector, but in a way we're stuck being hypocritical in the sense because of the limited options that we have. So what do you think we can do as individuals to help green the transportation sector as a whole so that the options that we'll have available to us can continually improve and improve more quickly?
1: Well, the first thing I can say is is vote. You know, Find candidates that share our same ideals at, at least that want to move in the right direction towards sustainability, that are providing consumer incentives, which are a huge component of consumer adoption of zero emission vehicles, and providing uh, you know incentives to the companies that uh, want to build these vehicles, and the companies that want to build a charging network or a hydrogen fueling network. So, I think really speaking our mind through our votes is a, a very important way to approach this topic. I also think just, you know, using our, our voice, like not just sitting there quietly, raising awareness about these topics. If you're not in a community where you have access, you know, going out there and trying to, to work with different organizations like EIN or work with your local leaders or, or with your state leaders to try to make sure that, you know, your area is represented just as much as downtown San Francisco or downtown Los Angeles. So I think those are, you know, at a, a macro level a way that we can all have an impact and then at a micro level you know as we are presented with these decisions as someone has a lease that expires and you know knows that they need to pick up a new car what kind of decisions can we make if if you don't have access to charging or to a hydrogen fueling network you know there are still very efficient cars out there there are still alternatives and then there are hybrids as well so I think it's really just being conscious and as aware as possible of, of what our options are, and then trying to take these little steps on, you know, on a daily basis or in the context of a vehicle, uh, whenever the choices are presented, just to try to do the right thing and try to, you know, make a positive contribution.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. We would, of course, love to keep learning from you and supporting EIN. So what's next for you guys and where can we follow you online?
1: All right. Well, you can follow our social media, which is at DriveH2, or you can follow you know, us through our website, which is EINOW.org. What's next for us? We are releasing a paper that's sponsored by the DiCaprio Foundation on ZEB incentives. This is primarily geared towards policymakers to show the importance of incentives like carpool lane access or rebates for the cars, especially rebates for used vehicles so that you know, everyone that can't necessarily afford to buy or lease a new vehicle still has access to this type of technology. So we'll be releasing that white paper shortly and then spending a lot of time in Sacramento working individually with the policy community to make sure that we can highlight these points and have a positive impact on on state policy moving forward. On the more fun front, uh, this is the 15th anniversary of the Hydrogen Highway Initiative. Our founder, Terry Taminen, and former Governor Schwarzenegger were the the architects of of the Hydrogen Highway Initiative. And so we will be co-hosting an event with the DiCaprio Foundation and the Schwarzenegger Institute uh, to celebrate this 15th anniversary and to highlight the road to come. So I'm really looking forward to that event. Uh, Grateful for the partnership between the organizations and just really looking forward to spending some time uh, Spreading the word.
0: Before we go into our final five, here's a little more about our sponsor that I'm so grateful for. And if you or your loved ones drink tea, I highly recommend trying their tea out. Arbor Teas sources loose leaf and organic certified teas. They're the first and only company to package all their teas in backyard compostable packaging. Their operations run on solar energy, and all their business efforts are offset by Carbon Fund. I love supporting small businesses, and also love that they're a tight-knit and committed small team. They share lunch together every day, they compost everything they can at their facility, and just take into account how all their decisions impact the planet. To shop Arbor Sustainable Organic teas, just head to arbortees.com. That's A-R-B-O-R-T-E-A-S.com. In case you're on the go, I'll have this linked on our website as well. But for now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow?
1: Well, I've got to say there are a couple. I mean, we have such strong leadership in California in this area, so I actively follow Terry Tamminen's uh, social media account, his Twitter account. So he is our founder. He's the CEO of the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, as well as Mary Nichols, who is just an absolute rock star. And we are, are lucky in California to have her at the helm of the Air Resource Board.
0: What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? You know, basically, I tell
1: myself that we're fucked and that <laughs> I... <laughs> I'm in a unique position to to try to help, and that it's it's my obligation to try to use the the platform that I have with EIN and my own personal voice to really try to make an impact. It, it, it's tough looking at the environmental challenges that we have, especially in a you know federal atmosphere where we're just moving backwards on, you know, environmental laws and regulations, it's tough to stay up on that every day. And so what I realize is that I'm lucky to be in California. I'm lucky to be surrounded by a policy community that has a similar mindset when it comes to environmental issues. And that I have an ability to go out and and set an example for my community, for our state, and for the rest of the country and the rest of the world to make these steps a little easier to take.
0: What's one thing you're working on right now for your health?
1: I have to take time for myself to make sure that I have an outlet for frustration, and you know all the things that we all deal with at work every day. And you know, my personal outlet for that is uh, is exercise.
0: What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably?
1: I just moved to a new house a few months ago, and I'm working on energy efficiency upgrades to the house. So I really feel like energy efficiency is is kind of the low hanging fruit. Replacing old lighting with LED lighting, or putting devices or lights or whatever it may be on timers, uh, making sure we have uh, insulation in the house. Some of these easy things that I can do on my own on the weekends or at night where I don't have to hire a contractor just to make our our own home more energy efficient. And I think if we all took a look at our homes and our apartments and and treated them in the same approach that we could collectively have a massive impact.
0: What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment?
1: Frankly, it's it's the leadership that I just mentioned when you asked about the social media accounts I follow. It's the fact that we have leaders like Mary Nichols and Terry Tamin, And You know, whenever I, I get down and feel like we're not making enough progress, I, I look to these leaders that are really just staying focused and diligent. And at times when, like I said, I feel like we're moving backward at a, a federal level, the folks that I admire the most are, are doubling down. They are working that much harder to make sure that, that we're all doing the right thing. So that that's very inspiring to me.
0: And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers?
1: Use your voice, right? It's, um, you know, the concept of not really feeling like this is just such an enormous task at hand. That how can we individually, you know, have an impact? It's it's really accepting the fact that we can all individually have an impact, and that there are little things and big things that we can do, and just to to speak up, especially to speak up for others that that don't have. Uh, as strong of a voice. Some of the communities in California that, that suffer the, the most from our consumer habits, like the, the folks that live around the ports and the airports and the thoroughfares that take, you know, all the goods that we buy on a daily basis from, you know, Amazon to Walmart or whatever it may be. You know, there are thousands and thousands of trucks driving through these communities between the Inland Empire and, you know, the Port of LA, for example. So it's to, you know, speak up for those that don't necessarily have a voice or don't have the bandwidth in their their life to, you know, join the environmental movement. So I, I think that's the most powerful thing that we can all do to make a difference.
0: Speak up for those who may not have the bandwidth to join the environmental movement. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in and thank you for your continued dedication and courage to speak up whenever you're able to. You can become a patron of the show and join our Green Dreamer network by going to greendreamer.com support. As always, you can find the show notes at greendreamer.com 132 for episode 132. Reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And you can find me on Instagram at Kamiya Sheen and at greendreamer podcast. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.